0: Brett
1: Grimes returns to the Bucks in practice, and he makes an interception to boot. Who's winning the running back position? We talked to Dirk Cutter. His answer may not surprise you. Practice, by the way, ended with a fight, and speaking of fights, former Lakewood star Dante Fowler and Jalen Ramsey with the Jaguars suspended each for a week for their roles in an altercation up there on Sunday, but not with each other. Ramsey getting in trouble for chastising the media that filmed it. And Tony Dungy. We'll have a press conference today about his induction into the team's ring of honor. My take on Dungie, his career here, and unfortunately how poorly it ended in Tampa Bay. All this and more on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Bursnick. Before we get started, let me tell you about a special offer from audible.com. Sign up now and you get a free 30-day trial. That's a $15 value. And as a listener to this podcast you also get a free audiobook. Now here's what you do. Go to audibletrial.com/sportsday. That's spelled a u d i b l e trial.com/sportsday for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. So the Bucks continued practice on Monday, of course, after today and after the press conference with Tony Dungy for the Ring of Honor that we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh the Bucks will be headed to Tennessee to practice during the week with the Tennessee Titans. They're going to do that Wednesday and Thursday, have a walkthrough on Friday, and then they play Saturday night preseason game number two in Tennessee. Um, pretty good uh, bit of news for the Bucks actually, on Monday as they get back cornerback Brent Grimes. This is a guy, of course, uh, their best corner. He's 35 years old, but had missed about a week or so um, with some some injuries, spent a lot of time with the, uh, the trainers, Un- undisclosed, of course, this time of year. We're not sure. Exactly what it was, but wasn't thought to be very serious. So he was back at, uh, you know, doing some 11 on 11 full squad work for the first time in, in almost a couple weeks. And um, I'll say this it didn't take him long to get into it. I mean, this guy, he's got great cover skills, and he was covering Deshaun Jackson, deep ball to him. And he actually, the ball was a little over, overthrown, and he made the separation, makes the interception. So um, you know, when you consider that the Bucks are sort of nicked up now with Vernon Hargraves, who's going to be out probably until the regular season, although they don't think it's serious, they really could use Grimes to come back and, uh, and play a little bit this preseason. Although I think, again, their, their biggest concern is getting everybody uh, to the starting line when they open the season in New Orleans. But fortunately, the Bucks have a couple of, uh, of the young rookie cornerbacks in, in Carlton Davis and in M.J. Stewart, and they've done pretty well. We had a chance to talk to Grimes after practice, and here's what he said about being back and about his interception.
0: Uh, it was just good to be out here. You know, I've been, you
1: know, just guy hanging around for a while. I got real cool with Bobby, John, Pete, Dutchie, all the whole training room. But um, I had fun. That was just a normal deep ball, see the ball in the air, make a play on the ball. It was Nothing I could
0: say, like, oh, I did this step, that step. No, I just saw the ball and made a play on it.
1: We also had a chance to catch up, of course, as we do every day with Dirk Cutter, and part of the conversation rolled around to the running back position. Now, we know uh, that in the first game, preseason game anyway, you know, really Peyton Barber was the more effective runner. I mean, he had four carries for 21 yards, a touchdown. Jones carried eight times for just nine yards, but he also had a score – I think, I think with Jones, it was, you know, a couple things. I mean, he did, he did try to get too much on, on a few of those runs, but the blocking wasn't very good. They, they were beat up on the offensive line. He played mostly behind the second team offensive line, even though he had a really good touchdown run, he dropped the pass as well. So it was sort of an inauspicious debut, if you will, for Ronald Jones, who I know they plan on, on him playing an awful lot of football and carrying the ball and hopefully throwing it to him as well. But, um, you can't deny that Peyton Barber, at this point anyway, and he is a veteran, is is certainly the guy that would be your starting running back for now. And he's also capable of doing almost anything. I mean, he could play on third down if he wanted him to, although that's not really the plan. They have Jacquez Rogers and Charles Sims and Sean Wilson competing for the third down position. So between Jones and Barber, I think those are going to be your primary ball carriers. And uh, we had a chance to talk to uh, Dirk Cutter about the running back position and about who's winning that job right now.
0: Peyton's our starter, and, you know, we're going to definitely use Ronald Jones and take advantage of what he can do, and uh, we do have the two
1: veteran backs behind him. So, again, we got three more preseason games. Let's, let's just let it sort out a little bit more, and uh, we, we could go either of those ways. Though. we just haven't, We'll see how it sorts out. So, you know, Dirk Cutter called Monday's practice one of the best that they've had. And, and I will say that from an offensive standpoint, that was certainly true. They did a lot of red zone work, and the offense was hot. A lot of touchdown passes from all three quarterbacks really doing a good job with that. I guess on the, on the bad side, we say, well, the defense didn't win many. They won a few. Um, but it was a good crisp practice. The guys were into it. Lots of energy. Unlike, you know, really the other day on Saturday, it was sort of flat, at least in the beginning. Uh, but towards the end of practice, it practice ended with a scuffle, with uh, a bit of a fight that erupted, and we know that Dirk Cutter uh, has a zero-tolerance policy this year for that, um, and in fact, he had sent Kalen Benenoch out of practice uh, one day you know, during the first week of training camp when he got into it. So, and there's a good reason for it, too. We remember last year, the New Orleans game uh, was a big loss not for the Bucks on the field, but also... If you remember, Jameis Winston had him, you know, being on the sidelines, getting involved with a defensive back, and then Mike Evans coming to his rescue and plowing the guy blindsided. Evans ends up suspended for a game. So Cutter trying to emphasize that they can't have fighting. Well, they had fighting, and it's football, uh, you know, talking to Cutter. I mean, you know, it's funny because he, he made them run gassers. He made them stop practice, and when I say run, they really jogged him. But, you know, in full pads and helmet and the whole deal. Uh, and n- did not resume practice. It ended about 10 minutes early. Um, so he was, you know, not going to tolerate that. And what's important about it is is that it's especially going to be important when they go to Tennessee later today and begin practice with the Titans on Wednesday and Thursday. And then, of course, they, uh, they play Saturday in Tennessee, the second preseason game. But when you're going against other teams, very often that's, that's where you have trouble Uh, in practice because guys go at different speeds Um, you know there is a little bit of competitive juices flowing more so even than if it's your own teammate Um, and you know certain guys go harder than others it just depends but they want to make sure that and and I'm sure Mike Vrabel and and, uh, Dirk Cutter will talk and have their teams understand that they're not going to have any fighting in this in these practices but it does occur as it did at the end of practice on Monday and you know, they, they ended up running or jogging these, you know, these um, these gassers. Now, the, the thing about fights is we saw over the weekend a big, you know, kind of a brouhaha between the Redskins and the Jets. They got into it uh, as those two teams were practicing against each other. And then a weird one, uh, Steve, this thing, I don't know if you saw the video of this, but the Jaguars were sort of wrapping up practice, if you will. And Dante Fowler, who, of course, everybody knows locally from St. Petersburg, Lakewood High, Starr has had a sort of a troubled beginning to his career. I mean, as a rookie, uh, first-round pick, he blew out his ACL. So, you know, that that was his first, uh, you know, bad bit of luck. And then, you know, he's had some off-field issues where he was suspended. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just sort of been one of these guys that's uh, been in the news for the wrong reasons at times. He did have eight sacks last year. He was, he's still a, an effective pass rusher. But he got into it with the guy that, uh, you know, it was it was sort of a late hit if you will, out of bounds during one of their scrimmage plays. And, of course, people start to take offense to that. He hit tight end James O'Shaughnessy, um, and then, you know, Bortles got into it, and then it became, you know, sort of a sort of a battle there. But, you know, at the end, um, it was him and another defensive player that, that were really going at it. And the whole time, the media was filming this fight. Um, one of the reporters, I think, from the Times-Union, perfectly within his rights, was able to film a part of practice that they were allowed to film uh, while it was going on. And Jalen Ramsey took great exception to the fact that there was a video. And he yelled at him, said, hey, man, y'all stop recording that bleep. And, uh, and then he went on social media and, you know, started getting after this reporter in particular. And the Jaguars suspended both Ramsey and um, Fowler for a week. And, of course, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but what are the other 88 guys wondering what they can do to get suspended for a week at training camp? Because nobody wants to be at training camp. So, um, But it's, it's the sort of thing that you'd expect maybe from a Tom Coughlin-type team, and so those guys were gone. So fighting is not good in football, Steve. You're not supposed to fight.
0: No, fighting's not good, especially when it's your own teammates. And, you know, what's, what's going to happen? Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to miss time. And now you get someone suspended. So, yeah, it, it's not good. Yeah. Um, you know, you you can understand it once you start playing against the same guys over and over and day it's in football. and day out. Yeah, yeah, it's football. I mean, the, yeah. uh, Cutter said that today. He says, look, it's football. It yeah. happens. Right. We move right. on from it. It's not, not acceptable, mm-hmm. but it happens, and we move on.
1: Yeah, I thought it's always funny with me because, like, Dirk, Dirk is the guy that has the rule that you can't fight, man. You got to go off if you fight or he makes you run or whatever. And then there's a fight, and he's asked about it. And so he goes, we had a fight, big deal. <laughs> well you made it a big deal I mean you know it's not this no it's not the only thing we saw in practice but you know when he's asked about it he's sort of like you know look that was one of the best practices of the year right there and you know he kind of gets offended that um that you know you, you mentioned the fight especially if you do it early enough um but look it's every every team I've ever seen especially about this time in training camp um they really do get tired and you know, everybody knows your plays and you know their defense and people are cheating and it's hard to execute and you get tired of the guy you're going against you all the time. So it sort of happens. So this will be good for them to get away and get on the road to Tennessee and, um, you know, scrimmage against another team. I think these are useful. Uh, what, I, what I didn't really uh, think about until recently, I was talking to Cutter about this the other day. So, you know, in training camp or in, in preseason games, Teams don't really game plan, right? I mean, they do mm-hmm. very little looking at the opponent. They pretty much go, you know, I mean, they look at them enough to to at least not get people killed. Um, so they, they do a little bit of of studying the fronts and the things that they might see. But basically, it's you want to keep your offense fairly vanilla. Um, the defense wants to be fairly vanilla. You don't want to put too much on tape for your opponents. So, you know, teams typically play it pretty straight up. Um, and there's not a lot of exotic blitzes and these kind of things, although teams do bring pressure at times. Um, but, you know, the other part is when you're, when you're with a team all week, like they're going to play – they're going to practice against Tennessee on Wednesday and then practice them again on Thursday, uh, but then they have a game on Saturday. So I didn't think about this, but I was talking to Dirk, and he was like, yeah, well, you know, we got to hold back what we do in practice. Because so now you're even more vanilla on top of the vanilla, I don't know what flavor that would be, but you you don't want to show much during practice because then when you play in the game, if they've already seen everything, you're not going to be able to execute and they're gonna make you look bad <laughs> so
0: it's a good there will point. Be, it's a good point on yeah,
1: that. I never really thought about it, but it's like you, you know you really can't run what you're going in other words, so whatever you're scripting to do against the defensive looks that you see, it will not be what you do on uh it will not be what you do on Saturday night. In fact, I remember thinking last year, and this is kind of ironic when you look back and see how the season went. You know, the Bucks, of course, were on hard knocks, and they were the darlings. And remember Chris Baker kind of chiding the Jaguar fans for winning three or four games every year. And, of course, we know what happened. The Jaguars <laughs> were great. The were awful, and Chris Baker was out of here. Um, but that aside, um, it was – I thought that when I just – to the naked eye, when I watched practice, okay – in, up in Jacksonville a year ago, I thought the Jaguars kind of kicked the Bucks butt a little bit, except for uh, the Bucks defensive line and pass rush deals very, very well. They they put a lot of pressure. They won a lot of those, and and that was the segment that that Baker was um, sort of chiding the Jag fans. But um, in the game, you know, the Bucks played really, really well. I mean, they they, they thought they dominated uh, the Jags, and um, and in fact, a lot of it was because. They didn't show a lot during practice, and Cutter did a good job of holding some things back. So we'll see the gamesmanship up there in Tennessee. And, of course, the big story, and we'll be writing about this all week, you can can rest assured, is it's Winston against Mariota, right? I mean, here we are a couple years later since they were drafted. We know uh, the big debate when they were coming out, and, you know, the thing about Winston was turns the ball over too much, and what about the off-field issues? And the thing about Mariota was – Really good guy, never going to be in trouble, but, you know, could get injured, kind of a slight guy, runs around a lot, might get hurt, and can he do it from the pocket? But the thought was he wouldn't turn the ball over. He was very, very good, very careful with the ball. Well, it turns out a lot of that was true about both players. We've seen the off-field come up with Jameis. We've seen him struggle with uh, turning the ball over. We've seen uh, Mariota get hurt an awful lot uh, in his career up there in um, in Tennessee, and but, but the one thing that I think people didn't expect necessarily was that Mariota has struggled protecting the ball at least of late um, last year, even though he has scoreboard over Jameis because he's made it to a playoff game and won. Um, so, you know, there's that. But uh, we'll have lots of opportunity to talk to both those guys and as well as, you know, John Robinson, who was here in Tampa Bay with Jason Light, now the GM of the Titans. So good stuff coming all this week from uh, Tennessee, and I'll be there. And uh, we'll talk to you, uh, of course, on Sports Day Tampa Bay, and check us out on uh, TampaBay.com as well. Okay, so today, Steve at One Buck Place, I don't know uh, just what your perspective was from afar of uh, of Tony Dungy. You know, you kind of were in the Cincinnati area. The Bengals were dreadful. The Bucks were as dreadful or more dreadful. Um, you know, for a long stretch, and. You know Sam White, who was in Cincinnati, of course. Tony Dungy replaced him, starting with the '96 season, Uh, and it was rough for Dungy. And Dungy was not their first pick. I mean, Tony Dungy was their third choice. They went hard after Steve Spurrier. They went hard after Jimmy Johnson. And you know, Dungy was a guy that came back to a couple interviews. And uh, you know, in fact, he tells uh, he tells a funny story how he was going to meet with Rich, and he, he had his glasses at that time. He didn't wear contacts. And he broke his glasses in half, you know, trying to get out of the car or something and had to tape them together. So he comes walking in looking like Urkel, right? With tape in the middle of his glasses. And he's thinking right away, he goes, I got no shot. You know, in fact, I think he called his wife that night and and he didn't know anybody here. You know, usually when you go for an interview, there's somebody that's recommended you, there's a connection on the staff, there's uh, somebody in the front office. and, And this was like, you know, his eighth time he had gone for a head coaching job and, knew nobody and didn't, didn't thought it went horrible. He said it couldn't have gone worse. He told his wife, Lauren, I'll never get this job. And, uh, but one by one, you know, uh, Sprayer turned him down. Then Jimmy Johnson went to Miami. Uh, they brought him back for another interview. And eventually, of course, he gets the job and they started horrible. I mean, they, um, you know, there was this referendum on the stadium. In fact, if you recall, and Raymond James, you know, it was a 5% sales tax that also included schools and, stuff for fire department and police um and the sunday before that vote which was on tuesday uh, the bucks had their debut with tony dungy they were playing the green bay packers and they went out there and everybody's all excited about the new coach and this defense and you know um all this stuff they got trent dilfer and all this and they get the hell beat out of them 34 to 3 and dungy is like well there goes the stadium (laughs) He thought, we've lost that. You know, there's no way people want to keep us now. We stink. And um, it passed by less than 5%, that referendum did. And, of course, they got the stadium built. Uh, and Dungy, you know, the job he had to do here, Steve, I mean, it was nothing. I mean, when you have a culture of losing, and you knew this watching the Bengals from afar, although, you know, Sam White took them to a Super Bowl, and they lost to Joe Montana and all of that. Um, but those two organizations almost mirrored each other in that and a lot of it was ownership you know it was the culver house ownership here in tampa and i think the brown family sort of kind of screwed things up there in cincinnati for a while didn't they
0: well i I think there's a lot of similarities in the organizations particularly the patriarch paul brown who was a you know football genius and and built the browns oh yeah years and then when he lost that job for many numerous reasons up there basically a power play then he Got in the expansion team in Cincinnati and built that, and then when, you know once he gave up football operations, he ceded it to his son, who has struggled most of the time. You know there was a stretch there with Marvin Lewis a few years ago where they made the playoffs for four straight years, but for the most part struggled to get big name talents and 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 do the right things and and make the right personnel decisions. You can kind of say there's a similarity with Malcolm Glazer and then ceding to Joel and Brian Glazer. Right, that, right. That ever since Malcolm's been out of the picture, they've struggled with personnel. They have. Whether it's and coaching you know, not just, and all not just that, players, that. but when I say personnel, I mean your coaches, your scouts, your GMs. Your, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's been a struggle there that the sons haven't done what the fathers did.
1: So true. And, and you know, Malcolm was, Malcolm was a guy that was, uh, you know, went after big fish. I mean, he was a big game hunter as far as mm-hmm. – and he thought out of the box. You know, at the time, I mean, it's hard to believe this, but when you think back, uh, this was 1996, and at the time um, I think there was – well, Denny Green obviously was in Minnesota, but Art Shell was the coach with the Raiders. And there were very few uh, African-American head coaches at that time, and it was rare, of course, to hire one. And the Glazers, again, I credit Malcolm for – thinking out of the box, and, of course, now we know he's, he's hired three African-American head coaches already, um, of course, with uh, Raheem Morris and Lovey Smith coming afterwards. Um, but it was the culture was so bad here, and, and even though they had players, I mean, Warren Sapp was on the roster, Derek Brooks, right, that was two guys from the 95 draft that both became first ballot Hall of Famers but would not have been had Tony Dungy not come at that point in their careers. They were playing but not playing well. They were out of position to some extent. Tony knew what to do with them, and they both credit him greatly for their, the success of their careers. John Lynch was about ready to quit and go back and play baseball. I kid you not. Um, and Because uh, he had been a draft pick of the Marlins. Um, and so, you know, he became, of course, their, uh, the third layer, the captain uh, of the secondary there as a safety. Uh, and they put this thing together. They were never a high-scoring team. I mean, Tony struggled on offense. He just did. Uh, and as – you know, one person told me it wasn't that he didn't know offense. He didn't know anybody who knew offense. <laughs> was, was, he, he really wanted Tom Moore, who was his coach at Minnesota. Tony was quarterback. Uh, and, you know, Tom was locked up. He couldn't get him. Uh, and then he, then he was going for uh, Rob Turner, uh, one of the Turner, not Norv, but his brother, who was in Chicago. And he couldn't get him. So he turned to Mike Shula, who at the time I think was like 32 years old or something. Uh, and Mike Shula came down here and was his coordinator for like the first, I don't know, good number of years. I mean, Shula ended up getting fired at a Pro Bowl. That's another story for another time. But uh, anyway, the, the, uh, the, the job he did in, in turning this thing around was I, I don't think people will ever appreciate it. Because, you know, he's a Hall of Fame coach. And, and that's largely because of what he did in Indianapolis. He won He won a Super Bowl there, of course, with Peyton Manning. Um, some would say he should have won more. Uh, you know, they certainly had some great teams, but you know there was this guy named Brady, uh, eh, a man named Brady, that kept getting over on on Peyton Manning and the Colts. Um, but they finally did get there. They got the Super Bowl over the Bears and Lovie Smith, which was another great story. Uh, but you know, Tampa, what what he did, you know, it's it's the culmination of his entire career. And Tony has said this to me that, and I think he'll say it today that the job he did in Tampa was much, much more difficult, even though the Colts had not had much success, but they did have, you know, Peyton Manning was, you know, coming off season, in which he set a record for interceptions and as a rookie and all those things. Um, but he just felt that it was it was a, a much more difficult buy-in for players uh, in, in trying to build this organization. And he left it in really good shape. I mean, we know that John Gruden eventually came in and took his 2002 team A year after he was fired, to the Super Bowl and won it, and and you know, in talking to Tony about it in the past, he said, "Look, I, I felt bad that you know we didn't finish the job." Uh, And you know, John was very gracious, and even on the podium after winning the Super Bowl, he he thanked Tony Dungy for leaving him a really good team, Um, even though John had an awful lot to do with this, uh, the offense, and really was the reason why they went over the top. But it was it was just. I, I mean, if there's a Camelot era of Buck football, and I mean this with all due respect, and, and I guess to some degree going into the Super Bowl year as well, uh, but but the the first time you win as an organization when you haven't won for a long time is special. And Tony's approach was, you know, let's be a team that's going to be in the playoffs every year. And if we're there enough, we'll break through. But they never broke through, and they were always getting beat by Philadelphia. Um but he really did change the culture, and to go and re- and get to the postseason four out of six years, um, have the first home playoff win in 18 years when they beat the Lions and Barry Sanders, eh, the old sombrero, um, it, it was really special. And I think a lot of those, I know a lot of players will be there today. Um, that I'm sure a bunch of them will be invited. I would expect most of, uh, you know. guys locally of course will come um, he was beloved as a coach and, and not just you know Tony's biggest mark um, probably wasn't on the field as hard as that is to believe uh, you know he he turned he turned the franchise around but he also he also left an imprint on this community he still lives here today of course but the play think about the guys and what they were able to do off the field and this was Tony's biggest emphasis was, hey, guys, if we just win, and you'll hear this today in the press conference, that, you know, if we just win, um, we haven't done our jobs. We have to leave this community a better place than where we found it. And so when you think about Derek Brooks and you think about Warwick Dunn um, and, and, and all the guys that have done things in this community, you know, the brooks Debartolo High School and Dunn with his home for the holidays, and um, there were so many players uh, that all started foundations and did great things you know, Hardy Nickerson for years was very active uh, here um, before his career ended. It, it really is a tribute to Tony because those guys bought into that as much as they did football. Um, and I, I can't explain really or verbalize what that era was like, but Steve, you remember those defenses and just how great they were. I mean, that they were they were good for a really, really long time.
0: Uh, everyone talks about that the Ravens defense being – you know, one of the greatest defenses of all time. And you, know, you got Ed Reed and, and Ray Lewis, you know, no doubt about they're, they're up there as far as sure. it goes with, oh, but, yeah. but I think that Bucks defense was deeper and, and more mm-hmm. stout, to be honest. I mean, and granted that's from afar and, and I wasn't, you know, here for that time, but you know, my, my recollection is that, 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 yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, I think it was more, they were that good much longer. And I think that's yeah. what, you know, that's what, that's what I remember from, you know, from afar of those defenses. Sure. I mean, you have no idea what the offense ever did and you know you're seeing highlights from Chris Berman on ESPN and that's it for the most right. part. But well, yeah, they weren't I mean, good on offense, but but yeah, I mean the, the, you know, because before that defense all you knew about, you know, Tampa Bay Buccaneers was the Bay of Pigs whenever they played Green Bay from Chris Berman. <laughs> that was all you ever knew about the Bucks before that defense became good and they became a relevant team. Yeah. And Berman came down here
1: and did the stories and uh and, and kind of was uh kind of adopted this team um when they when they started getting really good. I'll I'll wrap I'll, I'll say this, um, and you know, it this probably won't come up in the press conference because this is a celebration of Dungey's career, not necessarily <laughs> how it ended. Um and, and look and Tony, you know, I've talked to him about this too. There's there's no bitter feelings between him and the Glazers at all. I mean, they made amends a long time ago. Look, I I watched um Tony go through a tragedy when his son James um you know uh committed suicide and you know his family was still living here, James was still here and the funeral was here and the entire Colts team came came to, to uh to Idlewild up here in uh, in Lutz as a matter of fact, not far from where I am right now and went to that funeral and, and when I tell you that um aside from the Tunji family, who was devastated, and I'm sure still is today, by the loss of their son, I had not seen, there was not a single person in that church who was more, who grieved visibly, who, who outwardly grieved harder uh, that day in that church than Malcolm Glazer. I mean, he, hold, he held on to Tony, and I'm telling you, you've seen a man sob uncontrollably, it was Malcolm. And, you know, the feelings he had for Tony and and the closeness of of that family endured despite what became a really nasty, not not nasty, but uncomfortable chapter about how it ended. I mean, I was right in the middle of it. And, you know, we, you know, Tony could not score enough points. He, you know, he um, his teams were going to the playoffs, but they weren't advancing after 97 when they made it to the championship game and lost. 11 to six to the Rams, of course, the greatest show on turf. Um, He never really could get the offense just right. And, you know, uh, they should have given him a contract extension. They didn't. Uh, That was certainly a big sign that the Glazers might be thinking about going in another direction. But they had told him during the 2001 season um, that, you know, that, that, Everything was okay. I mean, Joel Glazer had assured him as much because there was a lot of rumors that at that time um, that maybe the Glazers were thinking about making a change, particularly since they wouldn't um, renegotiate his contract. So, at the end of his of, of that season, they're going to go back to the playoffs, and this is this is pretty inevitable. And sure enough, as fate would have it, uh, you know, in a divisional playoff or wild card round, one of those—I can't remember which one it was—but they were going to end up in Philadelphia again at Veterans Stadium again. And the Eagles were a very good football team and always had their number. In fact, they played the Eagles, I think, at the end of that year. And, you know, you could argue that Tony sort of made made the mistake of, of resting guys. Um, and, you know, I think the Eagles won. And uh, it, it, I don't know if that was really a momentum thing. But Tony's team's, you know, in Philadelphia never scored a touchdown. So there was that. Um, and... What had happened was I had found out through my reporting that several weeks before they played that game in Philadelphia, the Glazers had a deal. They had a deal with Bill Parcells to coach the Buccaneers and to take over from Tony Dungy. And this deal was done, lock, stock, and probably signed um, before Tony ever ever got to Philadelphia. Um, And I reported that. The Friday morning before um, they were to play Philadelphia on Saturday. In fact, they were leaving that morning. Two weeks before that, because i had been working on this story for a while, um, I confronted Tony and I told him um, what I had learned, and he did not believe it. He said, "I, you know, I think the Glazers would have told me. I've talked to Joel and Brian. Um, that seems, you know, he just he didn't didn't dispute it, but he just I do not 'I don't, I don't think that's possible.' Um, well, that Friday morning before they. Uh, played in Philadelphia on Saturday, uh, I broke the story about Tony. You know that barring, basically, the lead was something like barring a deep run into the playoffs. You know, certainly a win over Philadelphia on Saturday, that the Bucks planned to fire Tony Dungy and they were going to hire Bill Parcells. Had the deal, five-year deal, uh, whatever it was. monty Kiffin was going to be the defensive coordinator. Um, you know. Uh, Bill Muir is going to be offensive line coach and wound up being the offensive line coach for John Gruden and so on and so forth. Lots of detail, lock stock, lockdown story. No one believed it when it hit the papers that Friday morning, um, including Tony. And yet, uh, he writes in his book, if you've ever got his, you know, he's, he's an author of, of a number of books with Nathan Whitaker, but he wrote his first bestseller was quiet strength. Um, the, practices, the Principles, Practices, and Priorities of a Winning Life, writes a lot about his coaching career and his mom and dad um, and about that time. Uh, and he mentions that, you know, that Friday morning, Rick Stroud of the St. Petersburg time had, had uh, wrote an article quoting unnamed sources saying that I'd be fired if we didn't win Saturday's playoff game against the Eagles. I didn't really worry about it, but I didn't want the players to get distracted. So I brought the paper with me on the flight so I could talk to the Glazers. I knew I could ask Joel – given our conversations in Atlanta and his assurance then that I was their coach. But none of the Glazers were on the flight with us that day. As Lauren, his wife, says, he wrote, uh, I'm very naive, but that was the first time I felt that something was going on. How could the owners not fly with us to a playoff game? And, um, of course, the the story goes on, and uh, they do lose the game. And shortly thereafter, you look it up on page 194 or 5, whatever, he mentions that. I was right, Um, and he got fired on a uh, – I think it was on a Sunday or one of those – yeah, a Sunday after the playoff game. And it was sad because, you know, he got locked out of the building. Uh, His key wouldn't work. They had to let him in. He's in the rain putting boxes in his car. I mean, this was – this is how it ended for Tony Dungy in Tampa Bay. So, for all the celebration, and there should be one today, um, it was uncomfortable because then – you know, what followed after that was a weird press conference where the Glazers denied that they had spoken to any coaches, including Parcells, that they were just beginning um, that, that process. They said that Rich McKay may take a job as team president, and then Rich later put out his own statement saying he had not agreed to do that, <laughs> and uh, it just got so strange. And then, you know, of course, we know that Parcells eventually was identified as a the guy they wanted to hire, and he ended up backing out of the deal. And it could have been because he got pushback from the coaching community, or it could have been um, that he's going through a divorce. But whatever whatever caused it, he ended up getting cold feet and for the second time left the Buccaneers organization at the altar. And that led to a 36-day coaching hunt that led to, I tell you what, man, I got traded, okay? Just so you know, I was a Raider. I got traded in the middle of the night. So he comes to Tampa Bay. They win a Super Bowl. The rest is, the rest is history. Um, but it was really – an awkward, awkward time. And then a flash forward a year later, after all of the denials and all of the sort of spin that, that, uh, that the Glazers had about this whole episode, um, the Dallas Cowboys hire Bill Parcells a year later. And wouldn't you know that the Glazers trot out a signed contract that they had from Bill Parcells to coach their football team uh, and wanted draft pick compensation for it. And asked the NFL for that from the Dallas Cowboys. They didn't win, but it was a heck of an admittance that yeah, you know what? Not only did we, not only did we flirt with Bill Parcells, we practically married him, and and here's here's the uh, here's the wedding license, you know, the marriage license. So it was it was fun time, Steve. I mean, it was this was pre Twitter, pre social media. Um, you know, you had to go to ESPN for your news or um, somewhere like that. But it was uh, it was pretty it was a pretty interesting time.
0: Apparently they needed a prenuptial agreement. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's that's what they needed. Exactly right, um, because that's somebody got the house. I don't know who. I don't know who got custody of it, but it was, it was a weird time. And Parcells, I mean, he was famous for doing this. You know, he was the runaway bride. I mean, they mm-hmm. that was the every. I mean, twice they married him, and uh, Hugh Culverhouse the first time. My goodness, I mean, they had. Uh, they had fired Bill – they had fired Ray Perkins and then Richard Williamson coached the last few games. They thought they had Parcells hired then. Um, and Parcells – they called a press conference. Called a press conference. We're going to – we go to one buck place and we're walking in the building. You remember the old um, the old boxer, announcer, whatever? It was uh, Will McDonough for uh, NBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you remember him or not. It's oh, yeah. probably way before your time. Yeah. Sean but McDonough. W- yeah, but yeah. And and Will, he was like a um, he was like an NFL insider. He's one of the first real mm-hmm. NFL insiders. And he worked for NBC and he was on with Bob Costas. We're walking in the facility at one buck place, the old one buck place. And I look up at the TV stream and, and it's it's McDonough talking to, to uh to Costas, and he goes, Bob, I just talked to Bill Post He's not gonna go to Tampa Bay. And I went, what? <laughs> We're all there. And there's and then out comes Hugh Culverhouse, who was, you know, this stout little guy. I mean, he's a short guy and and uh had this, you know, in unique voice. Um and he comes out there by himself, uh, and he he's the groom without the, with the runaway bride, and he goes, uh, something like um he talked about Parcells, and he said, well, for the record, uh, there's no honeymoon, uh, and he even mentioned being married. You know, I've been left at the altar. <laughs> he he went there. He actually said that, like he was the runaway bride. And then he handed out, he goes, here's 36 points that I guaranteed Bill Parcells, everything from coaches, salaries to cars. Then he said we well, called him and told him that he wasn't coming at the last minute. Had scheduled a press conference. Have you seen anything like that before or since? In the National Football League, where you would schedule to announce your head coach who isn't there and decides not to come,
0: that's pretty rare. I mean, have the Bucks been left at the altar more than any other team? I mean, Chip I, well, Kelly. Well, twice Chip Kelly by Kelly the same
1: it. guy. Yeah. Chip but, Kelly did. Chip Kelly was another one that I, I remember talking to Mark Dominic. It was late at night, and um, at about eleven thirty, I wrote a story that Chip Kelly, that the Bucks and Chip Kelly had entered a negotiation for him to become the next head coach of the Bucks. And uh, it was two days before signing day. See, the thing about college coaches is it's really hard to hire them because as soon as the word gets out that you're even talking to them, then the negative recruiting starts and all your rivals pick off all your, all your prospects. You know, it's just everybody mm-hmm. starts calling and says, hey, Chip Kelly's leaving Oregon, come to USC. You know, like it's just that fast. And so you got about five hours to either consummate the deal or tell everybody that that it's not happening. And Kelly, I went to bed that night, wrote the story, went to bed that night and had a text message, I think, from Dominic at about 530 in the morning and said he stayed at Oregon. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He got cold feet. Um, I'm sure that Phil Knight and Nike and everybody at Oregon put the pressure on him. The irony was that a year later he did leave for the NFL and went to Philadelphia and had two ten win seasons, um, did a lot of things different, and you know, of course, one year in San Francisco, which was a disaster, and now he's now he's been out of football. Um, but no, he's uh, at, at NFL, UCLA anyway. He's, at, he's UCLA. at UCLA now, but yeah, he was out yeah. of the NFL for a while. You know that that was another weird episode, um, and that led to Greg Schiano, because Schiano was sort of a scramble hire uh, after Kelly left them at the altar. So yeah, they really have. Come so, oh so very close to hiring a lot of different coaches. I mean, hell, I even heard stories that before Dungey was hired, that Spurrier was went to bed at night thinking he was gonna he was gonna take the job in Tampa, um, and woke up and thought thought differently of it and stayed at Florida. So, who knows what's true? But I do know what I just told you is true with respect to Parcells in both cases. And uh, imagine how how life might have been different. Right. If Bill if we if the Bill Parcells and I don't know if it would have been better, but Bill Parcells was a hot commodity back then. Mm-hmm. Um had he come to Tampa Bay. So You know, I do have to
0: give a, the, I do have to give the Glazers credit that they do they do go for they go big. Yes. You know, we we we, we started, started talking about kind of how the Bengals and the the Buccaneers there's some parallels to their franchise, but in that regard mm-hmm. they're very different because the Bengals have only hired an outside a coach outside the organization once. And that was Marvin Lewis. Really? Wow. And the only reason they hired him outside the organization is it was going into year four of their new stadium. Okay. All the suites and the, the season tickets on it were three-year licenses. Oh, wow. And nobody was renewing for year four. Mm. And they had to make a change. And that's when they brought a, the first outside coach to coach the Bengals was Marvin Lewis. And he's still there. That was two thousand three, and, and,
1: and if you want to know the connection between Cincinnati and the Bucks with respect to Marvin Lewis, it's quite simple. After B- Bill Parcells left them at the altar, Rich McKay took over the coaching search. He was in charge of it, mm-hmm. and and we were at the Super Bowl in New Orleans. I think the Packers were playing the Patriots or something like that. But regardless, um, I met with Rich at the Ritz Carlton Hotel uh, on Canal Street, and. Um, I remember sitting down with him, and at that time, he was prepared to hire Ray Lewis, or not Ray Lewis, Marvin, Lewis. Say? Marvin uh, Lewis, Marvin Lewis, Ray Lewis. He just went in the Hall of Fame. He was really Marvin Lewis to coached hire Marvin. Ray Lewis in Baltimore. Yes, he did. But he was going to hire Marvin. Marvin was his guy. He was going to hire him. That was it. Uh, Marvin had his staff. Cam Cameron was going to be his offensive coordinator. Um, you know, they had the same agent as Tony Dungy. They had Ray Anderson was the agent. Uh, I had the staff, I had all this stuff and I sat down with, with Rich and it was like, Rich was like, um, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, what happened? The Glazers met with Marvin and felt, and you can see this, there are parallels. They felt he was too much like Tony Dungy, defensive coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of placid in his, in his, uh, delivery, you know, I'm not real animated guy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and they wanted offense, you know, they, if not offense, they wanted a bigger name. They wanted, they, he, he was too much like the guy they just fired. And the irony is, is that he goes to Cincinnati and he's there, he's still there after all these years. I mean, longevity, he had success in going to the playoffs every year. Never, never, you know, made a run yet, but, um, but still I think it's pretty ironic that that was the guy mm-hmm. that and then, and then after that, after they rejected Marvin Lewis, um, Rich was out as far as uh, the coaching search and the glazers took it over themselves and that led to a bizarre list of candidates. Um, but finally, um, and Steve Mariucci, who I now know through through my wife's work and, and just you know seeing him everywhere. Um, Mariucci was in San Francisco and they offered, you know they offered Steve Mariucci the job of coach GM in Tampa Bay and he didn't take it he had to think about it, he went to bed um, was pretty sure he wasn't going to take it but he went to bed saying well, "Give me, let me sleep on it they didn't let him sleep on it they called Al Davis back, this deal was on the table for a while because Rich had worked on it and they ended up calling Al Davis and trading for John Gruden and they gave up two twos, two ones and $8 million. The holdup on that contract, on that deal was Al Davis was insisting on Warren Sapp. He wanted Warren Sapp as part of that deal, and the Bucks would not give it to him, hence the $8 million. Instead, the irony is Warren Sapp ended up going and playing for the Raiders, and Al Davis for a couple of years his last few years in the league. Um, but that's, that's how that all broke down. Steve Mariucci could have been. And then, of course, it was Mariucci who got blasted by the Bucks in the playoffs, um, and that was his last game with the 49ers. The Bucks, that two thousand and two team, beat them. Wow, beat the hell out of them. And Mariucci got fired. Ended up in Detroit. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I mean, it's weird how this happens, right? Like, you know, it, it just one thing changes, and then you know, the whole world, you know, you get kind of a different. You know, you just everything's different. But it it really was. It was uh it was an interesting time. But but the Dungy era. Um, was really the turn of the franchise, and, um, you know, it rolled into Gruden and, and then, of course, the the years of success that he had. But it'll be good to see Coach. Um, look, I, I don't think any of this the, – the bad parts will come up for sure. Uh, he's still a big member of this community, and, and it'll be cool because he's doing – he'll do the Sunday night game where, wherever it is on NBC and then that Monday night. The fact that it's the Steelers is neat too because mm-hmm. Dungy – was undrafted, um, signed with the Steelers as a quarterback in Minnesota, signed with the Steelers as a safety in 77. In 78, he was uh, a member of their Super Bowl team that won, in fact, led the team in interceptions in 78. I bet you didn't know that. And then in 79, he was traded. (laughs) They traded him to San Francisco. And he was traded for Ray Rhodes, as a matter of fact, who went on to coach coach the Eagles and uh, and whatnot. And then uh, after a year, he was done there and – was going to go to the Giants, and he was going to get cut. He got cut by the Giants, and Giants wanted him to be a coach. And when um, the Roonies found out he wanted a coach, they were like, well, wait a minute. If You're going to coach? You're going to coach in Pittsburgh, right? So he went to Pittsburgh and became uh, eventually one of the youngest coordinators in the league there. But um, be fun. Be fun to go down memory lane as we just did with Tony Dungy. Okay, so big day on tap today. As I mentioned, Tony Dungy's press conference uh, around 1 o'clock this afternoon, so we'll have plenty of of memories from Coach about that that we will uh, play for you on Sports Day Tampa Bay. And then, of course, the Rays open a big series against the Yankees in New York, first trip to uh, Yankee Stadium for some of these young players. be interesting to see how they respond to that. Uh, As well as I will be ready to uh, head to Tennessee with the team after practice as the Bucks uh, begin preparations for their practices with the Titans on Wednesday and Thursday. And, of course, they play uh, their second preseason game Saturday at Tennessee. So make sure you uh, check with us uh, tomorrow as well. And uh, as always, look, we appreciate your feedback. Uh, let us know what you think about the podcast, uh, what you'd like to hear. Hopefully you enjoyed some of the uh, memories of, of Tony Dungy, and we'll have more of that Going forward, you can always uh, interact with us on Twitter. We love for you to do that. Reach uh, us on Twitter at Sports Day TB. That's at Sports Day TB. You can reach me uh, on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud@tampaBay.com. at Tampa um, Love for you guys to rate and review this podcast, and you can do that almost anywhere you can find it.
0: Yeah, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, iHeartRadio. Just do a search for Sports Day Tampa Bay. Hit the subscribe button, and then that way the podcast downloads automatically to your mobile device every day. You can listen whenever you'd like. Uh, Hit like on those posts or share them with a friend. That helps us even more. And if you'd like to advertise on the show, much like our friend Andy at Continental Wholesale Diamonds does, Uh, where you can uh, get your message out in front of thousands of people every day here in Tampa Bay. Contact our sales manager, Monica Boyer, at 813-957-0836, 813-957-0836. And if you can't remember that, just get a hold of Rick or myself, and we'll get you in touch.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll have Tony Dungy tomorrow, of course, uh, from his press conference, as well as uh, talk more about the uh, Rays and Yankees uh, as they begin that series up there in New York. For Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great Tuesday, everybody.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS.